Keep your Bibles open on that page, page uh, 1011, Mark chapter 12, looking at verses 13 to 17. Page 1011 of the Church Bibles. Also, be very helpful if you could open the bulletin to the center page of the bulletin, uh, because there's a sermon outline there, and there's some diagrams there that I'm going to uh, ask you to look at in a few minutes. Uh, so if you have the bulletin open there in the middle page, uh, and your Bible's on page 1011, uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And uh, just before we begin, can I uh, say to everyone who is, uh, those of you who are celebrating Chinese New Year, uh, can I wish you a, a very happy New Year. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been speaking to us uh, by your Spirit, through your Word, as it's been read uh, this morning. Uh, and we pray that you'll continue to do that now as we consider this Word together. Uh, may your Spirit empower me to teach this Word rightly uh, in His strength. And may He work in each one of our hearts, uh, pointing us to Jesus, enabling us to uh, not only see Him and marvel at Him, uh, but to love Him and obey Him uh, and give Him the place that He deserves in our lives. And so we commit this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Obligations. An obligation is something that a person is morally or legally bound to do. The obligation may be something you, that you delight to fulfill. Uh, to give thanks and praise to God, we say in one of our prayers, is both our duty and our joy. On the other hand, the obligation may be something we loathe. Perhaps in your job there is something that you don't particularly like doing, but you know you have to do it, and so you do it without murmur or complaint. It's your obligation. In our passage today, Jesus is asked about one obligation— but when he replies, he replies not just about one, but two. Before we look at the passage, let me remind you of the context of where we're up to in Mark's gospel. We're now in the week that will end with the death of Jesus. A few days before this, Jesus has risen into Jerusalem, risen, ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, and the crowds had acclaimed him as king. The next day, he had gone into the temple and he had driven out those who are buying and selling there. On another day, he had clashed with the religious leaders in the temple, claiming that he had God's authority to do what he is doing. And in fact, when we looked at uh, that passage a few weeks ago and we saw the way he connected it with the Old Testament, we could see that he was claiming to be God himself come to his temple. And then last week, we saw how he told a parable against the religious elite how a parable which predicted, not only predicted his own death, but also the fact that God would bring judgment against them for those who are responsible for it. And now, from here to the end of the chapter, he's going to face a series of encounters with the leaders of Israel. Group by group, they're going to come and attack him, and he will take them out. And we're looking at the first one of these today. This encounter involved two groups of leaders, the Pharisees and the Herodians. 
The Pharisees were very strict about following God's laws in the Old Testament and all the other laws they added to it in their tradition. The Herodians, well, they were close to the Romans and could be relied on to transmit information to Rome. They were very different, in fact, opposing groups. And yet here they conspire. They plot together. They pucket to attack Jesus in a very clever way. They aim, verse 13, to trap him in his talk. And let's see how they try to do that. They start like this in verse 14. They come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but, but truly teach the way of God. Can you see what they're doing? They pretend to respect Jesus for his outspokenness. They, they try to get him to speak in an unguarded kind of way. A technique that would have worked if Jesus was someone who was looking for their approval. And so after they tried to flatter him a little bit, they come to the actual question that they're asking. The middle of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, that is a very loaded question. The tax they're referring to is not the usual income tax as we think of it. It's, it's, uh, it's called a poll tax. It was a yearly tax that the Romans imposed on everyone. And many of the Jews resented it, and some even objected to it on religious grounds that we will see in a few minutes. Twenty-five years before this, there had been a rebellion because of this tax. It was led by a man called Judas of Galilee. Uh, the historian Josephus quotes him as saying, You are cowards to the Jews for paying tribute to the Romans and tolerating mortal masters when you have God for your Lord. His rebellion was brutally crushed by the Romans. Judas was killed, and all who followed him were scattered. Do you see what the conspirators are thinking? If Jesus says, pay the tax, and the Pharisees will quickly go back and tell people he's not really the Messiah, the Old Testament says the king will receive tribute from the nations, and he's telling you to go and pay. On the other hand, if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, well, the Herodians will quickly go to the Romans and say, hey, this guy's starting a fresh rebellion. Better arrest him and, and, uh, and execute him for treason. And either way, they've got him. There's a trap. So how does the Lord respond? Verse 15 says that Jesus knows their hypocrisy. He knows, the hypo he knows they're not sincere. He knows that they're trying to trap him when they just come up and say nice things about him. Uh, but the problem for them is that they're actually right. He doesn't care for people's approval, not even theirs. And so he wouldn't be answering the question just to please them. Instead, he says to them in verse 15, why put me to the test? Uh, in fact, the way the Greek is written, it's like the word me is underlined. Why put me to the test? Most of us know what it's like when people, usually at work, try to trap us in some way uh, to boost their own position. And it's, it's pretty unpleasant, isn't it? But here is Jesus, the Son of God, the one whom the Old Testament predicted was God coming to his temple, 
And the Jewish leaders try to play entrapment games with him. But he knows how to handle them. He says to them at the end of verse 15, bring me a denarius and let me have a look at it. And they bring one. Now, do you want to have a look at it? If you look at your outline, under 3A, you see there a picture of a denarius. I'm afraid it didn't come out very well in the photocopying. So don't, you can't see it very clearly. Uh, I tell you what, you can Google it when you go home and you get a nice color picture of a denarius. Don't, don't, don't do that now, all right? Uh, and and uh, in fact, you can even buy them on eBay. Um, uh, there's so many of them around. But if you look at this denarius, if you look really carefully, you'll see two things on the coin. You see in the middle, there is an image. And you see around the outside on the perimeter, there is an inscription. An image and an inscription. And the stricter Jews found both of these objectionable. Because if you look at the image on the coin, even though you can't see it very clearly, let me tell you, it's a picture of the Roman emperor. For all the other things, right, the Jews had objected to having a, a picture uh, an image of the emperor on their coins. Uh, they thought it went against the second commandment. We were told not to make an image of anything or bow down to it. Uh, and so the, the Romans actually made other coins for them that didn't have this. But on the coin for tax, still got it. So they didn't like that. And they also didn't like the inscription on the coin. The inscription says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, it claims that Augustus is a god, and therefore the present emperor, Tiberius, his adopted son, was the son of God. And so you have an image and an inscription on the coin, both of which the Pharisees don't like. And Jesus draws the attention of the Pharisees and the Herodians to do these, these two things in verse 16. He says, whose likeness, that's image, and inscription is this? Who is this? Whose image is it? Caesar's image, isn't it? Whose inscription is it? Caesar's inscription, isn't it? And so they say, Caesar's. And then Jesus replies, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The word render means to give back. It's what you use when you're paying a debt, when you're discharging an obligation. The coin, you see, give it back to Caesar. It's his image, it's his inscription, belongs to him, Jesus says. You owe it to him. Pay your tax. That's your obligation. That is his Give it to him. You don't, you don't have to agree with what's written on the coin. You don't have to agree with having an image there in the first place. It's not. But your point is not to worship Caesar as the son of God, but to pay him tax as the emperor. You don't even have to agree with what Caesar's going to do with it. You can't say, okay, okay, you can have it if you use it to build roads, but not to build armies. Or I won't pay the tax because part of it you're going to use for pagan temples. That's not the point. This is Caesar's. It's got his name. It's got, it's got his image. Fulfill your obligation. What Caesar does with it is Caesar's problem. And friends, that applies to us today as well, doesn't it? We are to give the government of the day their dues. If we owe taxes, we are to pay taxes. If it's GST, then it's GST. 
If we need to show honor and respect, then it's honor and respect. We are to obey the law of the land insofar as it does not contradict the law of God, whether or not we agree with it. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Fulfill our obligations. But Jesus says it doesn't stop there. He tells these leaders that they have a bigger obligation. They have an obligation to God. Render to God the things that are God's. Now, we know the coin has Caesar's image. Therefore, give it to Caesar. But what do you render to God? What is it that belongs to Him? Where do we see God's image? Well, the Old Testament tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that God created humankind in His image. Male and female, we are created in the image of God. The one thing in all creation that bears God's image is the human race. It's you and me. We bear the image of God. And so when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things of Caesar, that's, that coin's got Caesar's image, give it to Caesar. And if you carry the image of God, then render to God what is God's. Give your life, your whole self to God. And friends, that's not just a command for first century Jewish leaders because we're all made in the image of God. And we all have that obligation. It means that we all owe God our total loyalty, obedience, allegiance. We are obliged to Him that He should be our absolute ruler, that we should live for His kingdom and glory above everything else. We need to render that to Him. Have a look at the diagram under three uh, in your outlines. Uh, under three, three part two, uh, you see the diagram on the left-hand side. Right? And in that diagram, you see a hall of life. And then you see two circles in that diagram. On the left-hand, one circle is Caesar, and the one circle is God. And sometimes people, if they read this passage, they, they describe things like the way of this diagram. They say, look, there are some things that are secular. They come under the temporal authorities, that is, whatever the government of your country is. And on the other hand, there is the religious or the sacred, and that comes under God. And so you render to Caesar the things that are in that Caesar circle, and you render to God the things that are in the God circle. But if you think about it really carefully, that's not what Jesus is saying here, is he? When you render your taxes to Caesar, yes, you, you discharge your obligation to him because Caesar occupies just that one circle in your life. But if we render to God what is God's, he cannot be put in one little circle as part of our life because what is God's is us. It's our whole life. We can't put God into a little church and religion box and, and put our taxes into the government box and, and, and say, okay, that's that bit we discharge and that's that bit we... No, 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 no. That's not where we put God. We can't keep it in one little box because all the boxes belong to him. The whole circle is his. You and I belong to him. We are made in his image. We owe Caesar our taxes, but we owe God our whole life. We are made by him. We are made for him. All of life is about him. 
like that coin belongs to Caesar, we belong to God. And like those Jews owe taxes to the emperor, you and I owe ourselves to God. And so the diagram on the right-hand side actually is the better one, isn't it? We see there's no divide between secular and sacred. Our whole lives are sacred, consecrated to God. And then within that, oh yes, we serve our country, we pay our taxes, we obey the law, not because Caesar has a different division of his own that is outside our service of God, but, but as part of our service of God. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's because that's what God wants us to do. We go to work in the morning because that's what God wants us to do. We serve our families, we care for each other, we do because that is God's will for us. Whatever we do in the end is for him. And so, of course, if a clash comes between what Caesar says and what God says, then we, we obey what God says. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. Now, when Jesus says these things to the Pharisees and the Herodians, they are stunned. Now, not only has he escaped their trap, but, but he's actually shown where they've fallen short. Because they fail to render to God what is rightfully His. God has come to His temple in the person of Jesus, as the Old Testament predicted. But instead of worshipping Him and giving Him His place, they sought to trap Him in His words. But just like that, He turns the tables on them. He is an impressive, wise man. It says in verse 17, that they marveled at him. Well, friends, I hope you're impressed by Jesus, but that's not enough, isn't it? It's not enough just to marvel. That's what the Pharisees and the Herodians did, but there's no evidence that they turned and repented and came to follow him. Being impressed doesn't fulfill our obligation. Our obligation is to give him all of our life, to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. But even then, that is not the ultimate rendering. For we need to go further than this passage to think again about the image and inscription. We've already seen that the Bible teaches that, that, that we are made in the image of God. But there's another way in which the Holy Spirit speaks in the Bible about image. Uh, we saw that in our New Testament reading today, Colossians 1.15, where it says that, talking about Christ, it says that He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God because Jesus Christ is the perfect man. We are made in the image of God, but we, and we are still in the image of God, but we kind of like spoiled it, haven't we, with our sin. But Jesus, in his perfection, he is the true image of God, who truly reveals God. We see Caesar's image on the coin, and we truly see God's image in Jesus. And remember, Jesus talked about two things, the image and the inscription. 
Where else do we see inscription? Well, the Greek word for inscription is used five times in the Bible. Three times is in this story, as it's told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The other two times, it's talking about the sign that was written and strung up on the cross, nailed to the cross above Jesus. The inscription on the tax coin said, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. A pretentious claim. The inscription on the cross above the crucified Jesus read in three languages, the king of the Jews. That was the real king. That was the true son of God. And there at the cross where we have both the, the image and the inscription, we have Jesus paying back the ultimate debt. We have Jesus fulfilling the ultimate obligation because you see, my friends, if you and I don't pay our taxes, we go to jail. But if we don't pay God what is due, we, we go to hell. That, that's justice. And none of us treats God properly in that way. God deserves our everything. We're obliged to give Him everything, and, and we fail to meet this obligation. And so we've got this great big problem that God Himself resolved for us at the cross. For at that cross, Jesus the Son offered Himself on our behalf, His perfect life and His sacrificial death. He rendered the payment for our debts. He suffered on the cross to make that full, perfect, and sufficient offering that pays the price we could never afford so that we can be forgiven and restored. As human beings, we are to render to God that which is God's. And as the perfect human being, Jesus did that. And He did it for us all. And so we who belong to Jesus are free, free from the punishment of sin, free from the fear of judgment, free from the condemnation, from our failure to, to render ourselves holy to God. But we're not free from the obligation to give God what is His. We're still made in His image. We still belong to Him. In fact, when you think about it, our obligation is doubled because we're not only belonging to Him by creation, we belong to Him by redemption as well. He was merciful to us when we least deserved it. He paid that terrible price to save us, His own blood on the cross. He purchased us. We owe Him. We owe Him twice over. And we have twice the reason to give our lives to Him. And so, my brothers and sisters, as we live our lives, let's make sure we do so to His praise and glory. Let's live our lives to serve Him, to further His kingdom, to love His people, to see His name glorified. Let us make His priorities our priorities, His work our work, His glory our chief concern. Let's pay what we owe to whomever we owe it as part and parcel of giving God what we owe Him, our very selves. And as we give our lives to serve Him, we're not being some kind of hero. We're just fulfilling our obligation. Pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. 
and to God what belongs to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that in so many ways we've failed to fulfill our obligation to you. We haven't loved you and honored you and obeyed you the way you deserve. Please forgive us. Thank you that in your great love you gave Jesus to live that perfect life that we failed to live and to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And thank you that in his perfect life and sacrificial death, he has fulfilled our obligations and brought us pardon. And in response to your amazing love and kindness to us in him, we want to offer our lives to you once again. May we serve your kingdom, love your people, prioritize the spread of your gospel, and under the banner of a life lived for you, may we also fulfill our obligations to others. In all this, give us the strength to live our lives for your glory above all things. For this is not only our obligation, but our delight to find our joy in loving you, our Father and our God, who loved us and ransomed us with the blood of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.